Okay, Book of Romans. Book of Romans. Kind of, maybe. Not so sure if we should go to the Book of Romans, but we're going to go to the Book of Romans. All right. We're going to go to the Book of Romans, and I'm going to, but we're going to approach this in a different way. So this is one of those situations, if you listen to all the different podcasts we do. Um, I've been talking a, a, a little bit, well, a couple of things. One, sometimes uh, you stumble upon things that are a little uh, disturbing. Um, if you, if you, I'll just go ahead and mention this. I, I was going to do it when I didn't have the mic on and we weren't live on the internet, but I'll go ahead and mention this right now. It's not part of the sermon, but I'll just mention this. Uh, over the last three live broadcasts that I've done, we spent three plus hours basically reviewing a sermon uh, from someone who's connected with the Bible Project. Now, the Bible Project is all over the internet. It's everywhere. They make these animated videos about the Bible. People love them. They think they're the greatest thing in, in the history of the world. And uh, they keep making making them. They uh, And a lot of a lot of different websites will point you to the Bible Project so that you can watch their animated video to get an overview of the Bible or an overview of the book of the Bible. Uh, they're connected with some other apps. Very inf- influential very popular. Well, someone sent me a sermon preached by someone connected with the uh, Bible Project. And in fact, the Bible Project also has a podcast. Um, And so I reviewed the sermon. Now, whenever I review sermons, if you've ever listened to any of the podcast episodes where I review a sermon, I have a rule. I don't listen to it prior to reviewing it, right? Because I don't want it to feel like I'm rehearsing I want it to feel like that we're just sitting down listening to the sermon together. So I reviewed the sermon and... uh, well, we, we cannot be dogmatic, but if I've ever heard anything close to a complete denial of the existence of hell, it pre- came pretty close to, to saying that. It made it a dogmatic assertion that God did not create hell. We unleash hell by what we do, which, and hell doesn't appear to be a place. It seems to be something that we do with our actions or our words. It was the most bizarre thing. I'm still baffled by it. However, we cannot make a dogmatic assertion that, they, that the Bible Project rejects the doctrine of hell. And here's the reason we can't. If you go to the Bible Project and look on their website, guess what you do not find? A doctrinal statement, which is uh, very unfortunate, right? Like if you're making videos about the Bible, you think you would need what? A, kind of a doctrinal statement. So we cannot say that they have rejected it. I just want you to know be cautious, okay? Um, I'm going to I'm going to try to do maybe a, a, try to email them. I, I don't get much success when I usually email ministries. They don't bother to email me back. But I'm going to kind of say, look, we need some clarification here because what in the world is this sermon? It was most bizarre thing. I mean, that's why it took me three hours to unpack it. So just I just wanted to at least throw that out there, and just in case you're watching them, I would obviously never say don't watch anything. You know, I know I'm, I'm, I'm never do that. Um, I would tell you, you need to be cautious and pay attention to what you are hearing because there may be some serious doctrinal issues developing within. I don't know what's going on. It was just the weirdest thing I'd ever heard. So, so that's one thing. A second thing is that we've been working on Matthew 24 now for a very long time. All right. I think we have a now a total of 20 hours. Let me look here. I believe we're at 20 hours of content on uh, Matthew 24. Give me a second here. Yes, basically 20 hours of teaching so far in Matthew 24. We're a long ways to be done. 
And probably what my takeaway is from it is very a, a great frustration. And here's the reason why. People have been reading Matthew 24 now for, well, a, a very long time in church history. Agreed? Well over a thousand years, right? Been reading it and reading it and reading it. And after uh, over a thousand years of time, right, and in fact, if we go, we could go to, to the moment Jesus spoke the words of Matthew 24. You've got about 2,000 years of history, yes, of people reading it. And if there's ever a chapter where you think the initial reading should be very simple and very straightforward, it should be Matthew 24, right? I mean, even if you, even if you decide that Matthew 24 has something to do with the future, any normal person reading it is like, well, this has a warning about what was going to happen in 70 AD because we know when that temple was destroyed. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. But after 2,000 years, in fact, I reviewed a sermon in that series on Matthew 24 that I was about, uh, well, that almost just broke me completely because I'm like, what in the world? It's amazing that after all of this time, we still can't even figure out how to read a chapter in the Bible after 2,000 years of church history. That is discouraging and depressing to me. I don't know if it discourages you, but it depresses me. Because Christians, we should be able to at least figure out the basics, yes? So it's very frustrating, and we could argue about why this has happened, why nobody can figure anything out. It calls into question so many different things. But I mention all of that because we're in Romans chapter 9. Oh, man. Romans chapter 9. And you talk about... the. You get, you get a couple of commentaries. You, you really have to ask yourself, are we all reading the same chapter? Because you'll be like, their approach to this chapter is so different than their approach to the chapter, but they're all commenting on the same one. Now, to be fair, Matthew 24, to me, is pretty straightforward and self-explanatory and exactly how what should drive our hermeneutic or drive our way of interpreting the Bible. Does that make sense? Romans 9, I will agree, is far more difficult in knowing what should be the, the key to drive our interpretive process. Does that make sense? Like whenever you, like I, I did that this morning in Jude. I was trying to get everyone to think, okay, how should we, if, if Jude is writing to a group of people to try to get them to contend for the faith, then that should drive how we interpret the reminders. That's what I was trying to establish that, that idea this morning, whether someone caught on or not. I was trying to establish what is, what is the thing that guides our hermeneutic? Like, you've got to find the key that guides your hermeneutical approach to a text. Something in the text usually should guide, this is the thing that's going to drive me through this, all right? Romans 9, clearly not everyone agrees on what that thing is, right? Some people believe Romans 9, you know what Romans 9 is about? It's about justifying God electing Israel. They think that's the key. Another commentary, in fact, I marked it, right before. In fact, I gave this to you two weeks ago. Their approach is that Romans 9, verses 6 through 33 should be interpreted. This should be the key that drives our interpretation. That that Paul is going to give us four basic reasons why the gospel of Jesus Christ is not blasphemous heresy. Now, so one says, no, Romans 9 should be understood that here's God's justifying his election of Israel. And now this commentary says, no, the way we read it is that Paul's going to give us reasons why the gospel is not blasphemous heresy. Do you see the 
difference between those two? Now, here's, here's the, I'm going to take you behind the scenes and how preachers do things, right? Which I think is an absolute crime and everyone should get their money back, okay? It, it, it would be malpractice in medicine, right? Here's what pastors do. They go behind, they go to their study and they close the door and nobody's looking. Okay. Right, I'm going to use this commentary. All right. I'm going to grab I'm going to grab a pencil. I'm going to go through this commentary and I'm going to write down all their points. Now I may change the name a little bit, right? I may change it a little bit. Okay? Then I'm going to close the commentary. I'm going to leave it in my study so nobody sees it cuz nobody's going to come into study and go, "Pastor, what books are you reading?" because nobody cares, okay? So, he's going to obviously my study, I just leave the books here, right, on the table, okay? So then they hide the books and they come back and then they say in a very dogmatic and authoritative uh, voice, today we'll be looking at Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 9 is about this and my three points today are going to be this and you're like, wow, he's so smart. Where did it come from? Do you know that it came from that commentary? No. Most cases. Now they may quote from a commentary somewhere they may say and they may give proper citation but they won't say my entire sermon this morning came from a certain commentary. Now some may not be exactly that and I'm not calling that plagiarism because they're going to use their own words. Now, some may plagiarize. Okay, that's been a major problem in recent years in churches and pastors getting busted for plagiarism. Okay, but it's still somewhat disingenuous, right? Because you're thinking that, that this is the way it is. No, that's the way it is in one commentary. That's not the way it is because there's 50 other commentaries that will give you 50, maybe even give you 100 different ways of approaching it. And Romans 9 just leads to so much trouble and difficulty. So I, I, we, we started, if you remember two weeks ago, we looked at the approach this commentary was taking. Remember, and I gave you those four things. Does everybody remember writing those down? Okay, if you don't, that's okay. But I, I was thinking, you know what? We're going to do something this morning. Now, it may not be the most exciting. You may not enjoy this. You may not like this, but we're going to do this, all right? I grabbed a notebook this morning, and I started the process, and I stopped after point number four, all right? We're going to just read through Romans 9, okay? Now, we're not going to look at a commentary, right? If I do look at a commentary, I always tell you, right, because I usually do what? I write it right there in my hands and I hold it up, right? So there's no, so everybody already, already usually knows when I'm doing that, okay? We may refer to some commentaries just to show you the radical difference. But here's what I want us to do. Because there's so much, it's seeming disagreement, what we're going to do is set aside commentaries and we're just going to read through the chapter and try to create some kind of an outline. Uh-oh. You know how that usually works, we don't have everyone here, so that means you're going to have to step up. So what I typically do is you create the outline, and then what, I, what do I do? I tell you it's wrong. Okay. Don't you love that? Okay. Right. Um, but in this particular case, I don't know if I can tell you it's wrong, because I don't know exactly how we should outline it. And the reason we're going to do this is we're going to be looking for this. Everybody ready? The hermeneutical key. The hermeneutical key. 
All right. What do I mean by a hermeneutical key? What's the key to interpreting it? Right? The key to, I could do this with so many different things, right? I could bring in a, a movie and I could show you what's typically the hermeneutical key to, a key to interpret a movie. What's the hermeneutical key to interpret a movie? The opening scene. The opening like 30 seconds to a minute. Because many times directors places the message of the movie in some symbolic way in the first 30, minute, 30 seconds to a minute. And that opening scene, they sometimes like, oh, there's the key. So some, I can't, it drives me crazy when a movie's over. I'm like, I don't understand it. I'm like, it was in the first 30 seconds. What are you talking about, right? But you got to know how to, you got to know the secret, right? Even in, a, in, in, in interpreting lyrics to a song, there's usually a key. That's the, what do you mean you don't know what the song's about? It's right there in the second verse, okay? Like, how do you not understand? It drives me crazy, okay? Well, the Bible's the same way. Sometimes there's an interpretive key. For example, Matthew 24. What's the interpretive key that should drive our, our, our hermeneutic in Matthew 24? Right at the beginning. They walk out of the temple. They're like, hey, look at the temple. And Jesus is like, yeah, it's all going to be destroyed. And they're like, what? When? And then he starts giving you signs. Those signs have to be first interpreted as referring to what? The destruction of that temple, because we know exactly when it was destroyed. Was it August the 9th? I think someone posted it in Discord. I think it's August the 9th, um, 70 AD. We know the date, or maybe it was April. I can't remember. It's a number. I forget. Okay. But we know that's the interpretive key. Now, does that fix everything in the chapter? No, but it does what? Right. Uh, when, when everyone's driving home today, I want everyone to do this. As you're driving home, I want you to just veer a little off to the right. And just keep veering until you hear what? <laughs> Those rumble strips, right? What are they there to do? Wake you up, right? They're like, whoa, what just happened? What, 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 what who, where, where, where's my mom? What, what happened, right? It's to keep you on the road. The hermeneutical key is to do what? It's the rumble strip that goes, and you go, oh man, I got to get back over here. What am I doing? Because you're like going off into la-la land and nobody knows what, like what, what did you think the chapter means? Like what? It, what is wrong with you? Okay, that's, that's what it's there for. To say, oh, I got to stay over here. It's the interpretive key. We got to figure it out. So in a sense, well, all we're going to do today is just see if we can figure out the interpretive key. Is it going to be successful? Probably not. Right? But it'll be, will it be fun? Well, the young people will probably say no. Okay? Right? Some of the older people may say no. Okay? Okay? But as long as someone somewhere thinks it's okay, then all right. But the point is, is it's, it's important to try to figure this out. Because if we have one, because think about it. One, one commentary, I was going to read from both commentaries, but I'll just just throw them out. One commentary says that the, the interpretive key is the doctrine of election. This commentary says the interpretive key is, how do they word it again? Why the gospel of Jesus Christ is not blasphemous heresy. Like how did, how does that become the interpretive key to Romans 9? I'm a little perplexed, Yes. So, what do we think the interpretive key is? What are some things we look for to find interpretive keys? What are some things we look for? What are some of the key things you look for to determine the interpretive key? Right? Questions? Okay, what do you mean by questions? 
Okay, good. If someone asks a particular question, and then the rest of the chapter seems to be trying to answer that question, that would be a good interpretive key. All right, very good. Twilight gets an A for that one. Okay. What would be another interpretive key? What? Repetition. That's good. Is a certain phrase used over and over and over? Is a certain word used over and over and over? All right? Keep that in mind. All right? Another interpretive key. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know you're kidding, okay, because you know I don't accept that, uh, the ch- I, don't, I hate church answers, I hate church answers, church answers are the worst kind of answers, okay, I hate, uh, hate that, all right, what's ne- well, another one, another good interpretive key, come on, do I, okay, sometimes, well, well let's think, think this, uh, I think an interpretive key would be the purpose of the book, Right? Sometimes a book gives you a specific purpose. Like, and Jude, what's the purpose of the book, everyone? To exhort people to contend for the faith, right? Everybody remember that? Okay, that's your interpretive key. This morning, so what I tried to do for Sunday school was to prepare you for this hour. Because what I was trying to show you is, wait a minute, the interpretive key here is to get them to contend for the faith, not warning them not to leave the faith. Because a lot of people wanted, was trying to interpret Jude as a warning for them not to leave the faith. That was not the purpose. It was to contend them, to have them contend for people who had already abandoned the faith. Does, that, does everyone see the interpretive key? Right? See that, how that works? There's a lot of different things to look for for the interpretive key. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes the interpretive key is actually found outside of it. I'll give you an example. You know what the interpretive key is for Hebrews? 70 AD, the destruction of the temple. Now, the only way we figure that out is we look at the dating for Hebrews and like, man, that's really close to the destruction of the temple. And then when you start reading the warnings in there, you go, this makes perfect sense. And then it changes your entire interpretation. You've got to find that interpretive key. So here's the thing. The next time someone starts arguing with you about something in the Bible, here's what you do. You say, stop, time out. I'm not going to argue with you. I need you to answer one question. And guess what you ask them? What is your interpretive key? Because if they're using one key and you're using another key, you're never going to agree. Correct? Right? Never, like if two of us, if we, if, if we, go, to a, if we go to a movie, and if, if you've never been to a movie with me, typically I have a notebook when I watch a movie, right? Okay? Because I'm usually taking notes, right? Because I want to know the message of the movie. But when the movie is over and you're like, the movie means this or the movie, and, and I'm like, and I'm going to ask you, what was your interpretive key? And you're like, well, I don't know what an interpretive key is. Well, then how can you give me an interpretation? Right? Correct? So we're just going to play it. We're just going to see if we can we figure this out. So we already have one clue for Romans 9. We already have a clue. Does anybody know what the clue is for Romans 9? Before we even read one verse. Okay. okay. I, in this particular case, I think that they're, they're, that's there, but I think we have something else. Remember Romans 9, 10, and 11? There's something weird about Romans 9, 10, and 11? Thank you. Very good. This is good, but why? Because Israel becomes kind of the interpretive key here because 9, 10, 11 is all about Israel and it's really weird because the rest of the book doesn't appear to be about Israel. Now, if we go with what Twyla said, what's kind of the main, main focus of Romans? Okay. 
salvation, the gospel, justification. I think we can all agree, right? Okay? And so then we have to see Israel, and there somehow, what does Israel have to do with salvation or anything along those lines? I think that's a good way of placing it. Yes? Okay. So Israel becomes a possible interpretive key. Maybe. All right. Everybody ready? Go ahead. Well, uh, depending on who you ask, not everyone agrees on the key verse. Okay, so then we would have to figure out. Okay, do I? Okay, okay, which is? Okay, Romans one sixteen and seventeen, and everyone you can look at it, which says. The righteous faith, right? Okay, so basically, the Romans one sixteen through seventeen presents the gospel and salvation, and where we obtain righteousness. Where do we obtain righteousness? By faith. It seems to indicate that um, would be a possible key. All right, but let's go with Israel because nine ten eleven is clearly about Israel, and so how Israel is related to the gospel or salvation. Does that make sense to everyone? I think that's a possible idea. Are you ready? Here we go. Romans chapter 9, all we're going to do, do is read a chapter today and try to outline it, okay? And I know you're like, well, we should be done in 10 minutes, <laughs> and you would be foolish, okay? All right, here we go. I mean, it takes me eight hours to watch a movie because I have to stop it every 15 minutes to analyze everything. So, you know, you, you can't imagine how long this could take, but here we go. Uh, we're not going to, obviously, we're not going to make it all the way to verse 33, because, I mean, I'm not foolish enough to even think I can pull that off. But let's see how far we can get. All right, everybody ready? Romans 9, verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Right? Then verse 4, who are Israelites? Everybody see verse 4? Now I'm kind of I'm kind of walking you into this one, but that's okay. I'll walk you into the first one. Okay. In fact, some Bibles will break this down for you. All right. Um, and it will, let's just stop in verse 3. All right. I think it would be fair to say that Romans 9, 1 through 3 could be separated as their own separate idea for an outline. All right. Now, I know verse 4 is going to talk about Israel, right? But verse 9, 1 through 3, what's the focus on 9, 1 through 3? What's the focus in these verses? What's the focus in verses 1 through 3? Okay. Would you say that his strong emotion is present in verses 9, 1 through 3? Yes. All right. I'm going to read those verses in a different translation. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. This is the way I wrote it down. You can tell me whether you agree or, or disagree. I put great sorrow for Israel, verses 1 through 3. Is he not demonstrating great sorrow? 
Now, I'm not saying this is an interpretive key, but I think this starts giving us some kind of direction, yes? Paul begins this chapter with letting us know he is very upset, filled with sorrow, great concern for what? For Israel, all right? And we, know, and we know they're Israel. I know we have to possibly get to verse 4 for a clear identification. But I think we have a pretty good uh, identification in verses 1 through 3. Do you, do, do you agree? Because we know Paul is an, you know, an Israelite. We know he's a Jew. And then he says, uh, for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. Clearly, Paul is dealing with the people he is related to. Right? So, we can call this great sorrow in verses 1 through 3. Now, does this offer an interpretive key? Gives us at least a, it gives us a pretty good idea that obviously Paul is very upset and worried for Israel. So clearly we know Israel's getting ready to be talked about. We already know that 9, 10, and 11 is about Israel, but this sets it up. Why is Paul going to spend three chapters about Israel? We can answer the question. He's very upset. He's very bothered, right? This would be a kind of question that would be asked in Bible college, right? Why is Romans 9, 10, and 11 about Israel? Because Paul is in great sorrow for Israel. Please see verses 1 through 3. That's how I'd have to write the answer in Bible college, right? It's not going to be multiple choice. and Multiple choice tests are bad and evil and should be banned because you don't have to know anything, right? Multiple choice tests don't prove anything because the right answer is in front of you. What does that prove? Right? I mean, I proved it when I was in the military, right? <clears throat> everybody, if everybody knows the story, I did not want to be a staff sergeant because I was focusing on school. I was going to multiple schools. I was trying to, I didn't want to pass that test to become a staff sergeant. So I go in and guess what I did? Multiple choice tests. I just went, filled in all the little dots. Boom, you're a staff sergeant. Wait, what just happened? So then tech sergeant, guess what I did? <laughs> Boom, I got done so fast that there was an audible gasp in the room when I stood up. They were like, oh, what happened to him? Oh, I became tech sergeant. That's what happened to me. So I never read the questions and I passed both tests. Master sergeant, I refused to take the test. I'm like, I am not taking, at this point, I'm going to be general if this keeps going, okay? Like, I got to stop taking these tests. Multiple choice tests are not fair because they give you the answer. So even if you don't know, just guess, and there's a chance you're going to get it right. That's like, I don't know, that's evil, okay? Just give me a question, and then guess what's underneath it? Blank space, and you've got to go, oh. What do I do? My essay questions are, oh, well, that's not fair either. Because you can just write long enough, you're going to get something right, right? It doesn't matter what. You give me an essay question three hours later, like, would you stop writing? No, I'm not done, okay? I, I, even I'm just telling a story. It started in a log cabin in Nebraska in 1800s. And they're like, this, what does this have to do? Just keep reading. It'll f- tie in somewhere. I'll get there, okay? But in this particular case, if you're in Bible college, they would say, why is Romans 9, 10, and 11 about Israel? And what would you say? Paul's in great sorrow. He is so bothered. In fact, why is he so bothered? That would be another question. 
He's clearly bothered that they are going to be, they're separated from God. So what does he wish that could happen? That he could be cursed. He could be cut off from Christ for them. He wishes, hey, you know what? God, look, if you could, just send me to hell so that they will not have to be punished. That's, that's pretty serious. So in other words, there's, a very, there's an emotional investment in everything that follows. Does that make sense? It's hard to read it that way. We, we kind of forget the emotions right when, by the time we get to verse 4, don't we? Like, Paul's very upset. This is the way it's preached. Paul's very upset. You should be upset for the loss. And you're like, man, I don't feel that. I'm not, I'm not a really a good person. Okay, now we're going to go down to verse 4. And it's like you just forget the emotion. The emotion is driving three chapters of Israel, 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 Israel. Agreed? All right. Now, what happens in verse 4? Who are Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises? Who are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. All right, stop right there. What happens in these two verses? Oh, say, say that, say that word. The blessings. I like that. All right, so I, I'm, 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 I'm doing too much for you already. I feel like I'm cheating you out of your education here. All right, verses one through three, we have, got, we have great sorrow. Agreed? So what would verse four and five be? How about great blessings? The great blessings of Israel, right? What are the great blessings mentioned in verses four through five? What, what are the blessings Israel received? Adoption. Glory, covenants, giving of the law, service of God, promises. Who are the fathers and of whom are concerning the flesh Christ came? They were blessed to be the ones from which Christ was going to come. That's a pretty big blessing. All right. Paul's in great sorrow for them, but they have some great blessings. So far, so good. Do we have a, a good interpretive key yet? I think we have, the, we have the reason and Paul's emotion, right? I don't know if their great blessing gives me an interpretive key. Does that, I don't know if it gives me an interpretive key yet, all right? Uh, we, we spent, we've spent eight plus hours looking at all the promises given to Israel. Okay, we, so we've clearly identified Israel's been given some great promises, all right? Now, this is where, the te- this is where everything gets all weird, is really the rest of the chapter, okay? All right, now... I'm going to start in verse 6. We're just going to read verse 6. I may just, I'm just going to try to pick a place. I'm not even going to look at my notes. I'm just going to try to pick a random place to stop. And you're going to either say no, or, you, or you're going to tell me to stop before it. Right? You tell me where you think we should break this section down. All right? So we've, how many sections have we kind of established in my just kind of artificial outlining? Two. Verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 5. Now, do you see why I separated 6 from verses 4 through 5? Why did I separate 6 from verses 4 through 5? 4 and 5 ends with it. What? Or how does 5 end? 
Okay, ends with a period. Okay, now just remember the uh, punctuation wasn't in the original because they were smart and they knew a punctuation was evil. Okay, it ends with amen. This is true. And then immediately verse 6 says, not as though almost a complete shift in focus. So for outlining purposes, that would tell me that I need to start a new section in my outline. So we got two sections. Section number one is the great sorrow. Section number two is the great blessing. Now what starts in verse 6? Everybody ready? Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are, which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. For the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there righteousness with God? God forbid. For he... Do what? Did someone say something? Oh, unrighteousness. I'm sorry. For what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For nobody thinks that we should have stopped at any point yet? Okay. All right. I was just going to keep reading, but where do you think we should stop? We started in verse 6. Everyone agree we have to start in verse 6 because that's clearly a new section. Do you think we should stop? Okay. I need to find my pencils here. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put down all the possible suggestions here. Okay. And we're going to see who gets this right and who gets it wrong. Okay. All right. Because there's someone's got to be right and someone's got to be wrong. Okay. So, Mr. Goodlett says what? Verse 13. All right. Twyla, what do you think? I know you're like, man, I don't want to go to a church where they make me do the work. Okay, but. Okay, she's going to read. Anybody else feel free to throw in where you think it should stop. Someone's going to say, it shouldn't stop to the end of, the, of chapter thir- or 12. Okay, no, don't, don't say that. Verse 13, we got another verse 13, okay. Either this is peer pressure, everyone's afraid to disagree with Mr. Goodlett. Oh, he, he is old, okay. Okay, okay. I, I, yeah, well, he's uh, got some gray hair there, so. But I don't, I don't know if that gray hair really means you're hermeneutically correct, but okay. All right, come on, what do you think, what do you think? Talk it out, talk it out, it's okay. It's okay, you can talk to one another. I mean, I don't, I don't want to lead to a divorce or anything, but you can definitely have some... Uh, we could definitely have some... Uh, okay, so Twyla's going to start a church split because she's like, I think it should go to verse 14. Okay, all right. Okay. 
Mr. Goodlett, why did you stop in 13? Okay. So why do you think we should stop there? Ah, good. Okay. So uh, Mr. Goodlett's argument is 14 starts with a question. So that starts a new section. All right. That's good. Not, I, I'm, I'm assuming you're not thinking, you're, you're not arguing that the question is not related to what comes forward, but the question in, in de, indicates a different section because now it's going to do something with the information provided to us in the verses 6 through 13. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. All right. All right. Anybody else? Okay. I, I didn't mean to try to. Ah, okay. I see what you're doing there. That's pretty smart. Because uh, not all Israel is Israel, and then it ends with a drawing a distinction between Jacob and Esau. All right, that's that's pretty. That's a good. I like that. That's pretty good. All right. Anybody else? Anybody else thinks that we should keep going? All right. I'm just going to assume silence means complete agreement. All right. So Mr. Goodlett is going to be responsible for whatever happens next. Okay. All right. If the ship goes down, he's the one who drove us into the iceberg. Okay, everybody, everybody there. So verse 13 is where we now pick this up. So what are we going to call verses 6 through 13? What are we going to call this section? This is where there's much dispute. Okay, let's do this. Let's play a little game. Verse 14. Verse 14. Okay, just look at verse 14. Asks a question. The question clearly is being asked in regards to what happens in verses 6 through 13, right? And the, the question is an anticipation that someone is going to have some major problems with verses 6 through 13. Someone is not going to like what they read in verses 6 through 13. Verses 6 through 13 seems to indicate what? Okay. Oh, 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 wait, wait, okay, now, now we're getting all kinds of different directions. Okay, all right, I knew this would be the section where we would have, okay. Yeah, what Mr. Gullett just said is true, that, that verses 6 through 13 seems to be drawing a distinction between the natural children of Israel versus... We'll call it the spiritual children of Israel. Okay? I do agree a distinction is being made that way. What? So I think Seth said something? Okay. Election. Okay. I'm just going to summarize election. Okay. What were you going to say? Okay. Now, that means then is it possible, since clearly we know when he asks this question, he realizes someone's going to be bothered by verses 6 through 13. Would everyone agree that's how we should read the question of 14? Right? It's like, I just said, a, it's like sometimes, well, I, I, I taught uh, high school students at a school in uh, Nebraska, and uh, you, you can almost say something like, okay, all right, here's what we're going to have to do, or this is what you're going to have to do, and then you just almost have to go, now, 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 now. 
I know there's already, uh, uh, there's already arguments against what I just said. Here's how it works. If you don't, you fail. Okay, there you go. All right. So you have to anticipate the, re- the reaction. You, you have to know the reaction is going to... Well, same thing in teaching the Bible or theology. You know if, if I say this, that's what... Even though you may not say it, I can almost anticipate sometimes what you are thinking or feeling. That's kind of what Paul anticipates, right? That he anticipates that someone is going to say what in verse 14? This is messed up! This is wrong. God is messed up. How dare he do do this kind of thing? He's anticipating it. So that means we have to figure out what's going to make them so upset. And it seems like that verse 6 through 13, at least has God making sovereign choices. Agreed? So I'm going to say that we could possibly call this, if we go with the great idea, We have the great sorrow, we have the great blessing, great choices, or great election. Possibly, right? Now, this becomes the interpretive clue, or the interpretive key for many people. They're like, this is the section. This is the section. Because it deals with election. And why do they want to jump on that? How did chapter 8 end? Well, nothing can separate it from God because of God's election, right? And that what leads us to that discussion? All right, so they're like, hey, this is about election. This is going to continue it. All right? All right, maybe. All right, maybe. There's a lot here we have to figure out, okay? But let's go through this quickly. Let's go, well, we'll call this, uh, someone said great choices. I think that's, Maybe that's even better than election because that adds such a theological idea to it. And and our our outlines, we try to keep them away from that. So great choices may actually be better. So let's let's go through and let's see all the choices made starting in verse 6 to verse 13. Everybody ready? Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are Israel. That's kind of his, that's kind of the thesis. That there's a distinction within Israel. There's Israel and there's Israel. And the, the two are not the same in some way, shape, or form. All right? So let's go through this. Everybody ready? What's the first one? Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. Okay, so stop right here. In other words, you could be of Abraham, but not a child of Abraham. Now, it doesn't say anything here about a divine choice, but it does seem to, this is just drawing a distinction. Now, this is where we have to think, should we call this the great distinctions, or should we call this the great choices, or should we call this the great election? Because here's just drawing a distinction, right? Not all Israel is Israel. Hey, here's Israel, but not all Israel is Israel, so there's some in Israel that's really Israel. And now he's saying that there's some children of Abraham that are not what? Children of Abraham, right? Okay, well, I'm not offering an interpretation. We're just offering an observation. Now, what does he go from there? But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Stop right there. Now, does, is he drawing a distinction here or, or showing a, a, a distinction? We'll look at verse 8. That is, they are the children of the flesh, These are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At that time, 
will I come and Sarah shall have a son and not uh, stop right there. So in a roundabout way, he draws a distinction here or draws a, a choice between two sons. One of them is not mentioned. Who are the two sons? Isaac and Ishmael. Who's the chosen? Isaac. Who's not chosen? Ishmael. Are they both have Abraham as a father? Now, let's be fair. Right here, you can start feeling the, the, uh, the verse 14 coming out from, from inside of you, right? You're like, wait a minute, what did, what did Ishmael do wrong? What did Ishmael do? Did he, did, did he do anything wrong? No. Right? He didn't do anything wrong. It's like, you, 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 anyone, the, 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 we could do it with the Dazzlers or the Pierces. It's large, large families, 900 kids, okay? Don't know all the kids' names, but okay. There lots of kids, right? So you have Emma and Lydia. Okay, see, I remembered two of your names. Woo, man, woo. Okay, I don't know the rest of them, okay? But okay, right, you have Emma and Lydia, right? God chooses Lydia over Emma because Emma's not here. So, okay, that, that's... that's that's what happens. You just got thrown out. Okay. All right. Emma's rejected. Lydia is, is there. Now, you say, but wait, wait a minute. Now, if I throw in the fact that she's not here, you say, well, she wasn't there, so she deserves it. But in this particular case, here they are. Did they do anything? Think of them as babies. And then Lydia gets chosen and Ishmael gets rejected. So Ishmael is now not a part of the, of Ab- considered a spiritual child of Abraham simply because of what? God's choosing. Right? We have Twyla and Lacey. I can remember too. See, I can remember too, right? Twyla chosen, Lacey not. Well, that's, does anyone want to say that's unfair? I'm, I'm, I may need the teenagers to speak up because they're quick to say things are unfair, right? That's unfair, it feels unfair, yes? Feels unfair. Okay, is there, an, is there another distinction? What's next? And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born. Oh, now, now it's going to go even further, right? Okay, you can say Ishmael and Isaac. Well, you know, you know we know Ishmael's mom. Yeah, a really messed up, messed up, messed up, messed up story in the Bible. Whoa, that story, whew, we won't even go in how messed up that story is. Okay, but, so, we, we can say, okay, they're older, maybe, maybe we can try to draw some distinction, but to make sure that he drives his point home, he goes even further. Now we have, who's the mom? Who's the dad? Isaac, all right. So they have the same mom. In the previous illustration, it's not the same mother, correct? So you go like, well, there's a difference in moms here, so maybe, maybe. Now he's going to make sure all of those arguments get blown out, out, right? Same mom, same dad. What happens? For the children being not yet, they're not even born yet. Next, neither having done any good or evil. They haven't even done anything good. They, they haven't done anything. That the purpose of God according to, oh, there's the word. So now we could put election in our outline and it would be okay. Because it's actually in the text. Right? 
See how? See, I, I wanted to wait until we got here. So that the election, election of whom? Or evil that the purpose of God according to election, in other words, it's God would be doing the electing, it's his purpose, right? Okay. Might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, right? And which is kind of messed up. That's not the way it's supposed to work in that culture. The elder serving the younger? Wait, wait, what? How does this? No, 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 no. If, if you're the elder right here, what are you going to be saying? Who's the youngest in your particular family? Who's the youngest in your family, uh, Lydia? Okay. Maybe we'll change the rules for that one. Okay, all right. And your family? It'd be awesome. Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I want that. Okay, and y'all's family? Who's the, there you go. Everyone's going to be serving you today. Okay. All right, I, I think immediately I see some rejection happening in the family, okay? She's going to be walking around today. That's right, you heard it in church. Serve me, okay? And then she won't, we'll never see her again after today. She'll, she'll be like Joseph in a pit somewhere, okay? All right, don't, no, don't, don't do that. But, so, but in this particular case, that, that's pretty, look, even in our culture, the, the older are going to be like, I'm not, no way, okay, no way, all right? But in this culture, it's like, this is like, whoa, wait, what just happened? Right? And considering this is happening, this was chosen before they were born. And then it even gets worse. Nobody loves the next verse. I don't even like the next verse. As it is written, Jacob I have loved. What? What? No, 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 no. I don't like that. Do you like that? You like it if you're Jacob, right? A lot of times we don't read that the way, and if you know the story, was Jacob a great guy? Oh, give me a break, man. Jacob was trash, okay? Jacob was a dumpster fire. I mean, come on, man. I mean, not a great guy. It's okay to say that. Like some people are like, oh, he said he's trash. You can't. No, I'm saying we have to understand. When we read the Bible, we don't, sometimes we, we treat the Bible like, you know, we can't be honest with how we feel about the text. We can be honest about how we feel with the text, okay? I don't know if you realize this. God can handle it, okay? All right? He's all-knowing, all-powerful. But we, if we're not honest with our reaction to the text, then we don't, it, we're handling it in a fake way. That's not how you read a normal book. How would you read a normal book like this? You'd be like, this is messed up. Especially if you know about Jacob. But this decision was made before they were even born. Man, that's not good, is it? And then we find out Jacob, I've loved. Who's the one doing the loving and the hating? Oh, man, that's hard. I don't have a good answer here. Right? Now, We're going to have to stop here. I didn't realize, man. Oh, I hate the clock. Okay. All right. Now do you see why Paul is so sorrowful? Why is Paul so upset? He's upset because here's the reality. Not every Jew, not every Hebrew, not every Israelite, is in right standing with God. 
those who are in right relationship with God, well, we're getting to the election idea, but the right relationship with God for the individual Jew is based off what? The right relationship with God for the Jew is based off what? Well, you can say God's choosing. Spiritual stand, spiritual reality. In other words, just because, hey, there's, let's say there's 15 of us, and let's say we're all Jews. Hey, we're Father Abraham. We're good to go. Father Abraham had many sons, and I'm one of them, right? I'm good to go, right? We're Jews. We're good to go. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. You're not good to go. You're not good to go because there's a distinction. The distinction is you may be of the nation of Israel, but you may not be in right relationship with God. Your right relationship with God is based off what? Faith. Now, yes, election is obviously a part of this, but obviously someone who's elected will at some point have faith. He's trying to draw the distinction. He's upset because he's like, man, not all of you are in right standing with God. And, he's, and, and he points out, even though you've received all of these blessings, the blessings go to whom? Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you're born in America doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you're, you can be born inside a church, it doesn't make you a Christian. That is dependent on faith. Now, we could get into the doctrine of election, which is where this is going. He's trying to demonstrate, when he says not all Israel is Israel, what does he mean? There's the nation, and there's the spiritual children of Israel. And he's drawing that the distinction between all of them is based off what? So far, God. God's choosing. Which is going to lead someone to go, that's not fair. Does that get us up to down to verse 14? Close? Does that, in fact, did we stop with verse 13? Okay, there we go. We made it. Look at that. We outlined verses 1 through 14. So what do we have? The great sorrow, the great blessing, and well, I'm going to call it the great election. Now, and I, I do like the fact that she initially said great choices because that's how we should have went through. But once we found the word election in the text, then we could add it to the outline because now we're not, we're not uh, interpreting does that make sense? 6 through 13. Now, 14 is where the, we're going to change to the, the challenge. Okay? The challenge is going to be like, verses uh, 6 through 13 is not fair. And let's be honest. Does anybody here feel that that's fair? You can be honest. I know you're like, in church, I can't do that. No, in this church, you can't. Okay? I, I don't like it. I don't like it. So we're going to have to have Paul explain why, and, and this, is, this is the one thing, we'll end with this, because this is so important. If you, haven't, if you don't learn anything from today, take this away. The one thing you're going to learn about Christianity very, very quickly is it's not always about what you like. Christianity is not about what I like. I'm not a Christian because I like it. I'm a Christian because I believe it to be true. All right? If I, cho- if, yes, if I went around choosing what I like, probably a lot of you wouldn't even be here. Because I would probably do a lot of messed up stuff. And if you made me mad, I'd probably just get rid of you. You can't always do what you like. I know that's a shock, all right? 
Young people are like, wait a minute, I've got to write this down. I can't always do what I like. Like, what kind of nonsense is this? It's true when you're young. It's true when you get older. I know it's a shock, right? I, got, I remember jo- Mr. Goodlett probably saw it. A lot of young people, I joined the military because I got tired of my parents telling me what to do, right? And you're like, okay, now I'm going to tell you what to do. All right, that, that seems kind of weird, right? But, yeah, I'm going to leave home and go get a job, and no one's going to tell me what to do. Right? Life, it doesn't, Christianity doesn't work that way. Life doesn't work that way. We can't always, it's not always about what we like. And there's plenty of things in the Bible I don't like. And it's okay to acknowledge that. It's okay to acknowledge that. All right, we'll stop right there. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Thank you for a church that would allow me to work through a text this way. Most churches would not put up with this, but Lord, I'm thankful that we can spend the time working through a text together, trying to figure out exactly how we should interpret it so that we can find truth and not just relying on a commentary. I I pray that we will be more than willing to be humble and see what the commentaries have to say and correct where we may be wrong. But I pray that we would just spend the rest of this week looking at this chapter and trying to determine how to look and process the rest. Lord, just humble us. And whenever we come across things we don't like, remember that we just have to humble ourselves because you are God and we are not. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,